0: open your Bibles to Hebrews while I All right, good morning, it's good to see y'all. Hebrews chapter 12. And if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Pastor Scott. I'm the senior pastor here, and I would love to meet you afterwards. Please introduce yourself if I don't uh, snag you beforehand. Just uh, like to know who you are and how we can love on you and pray for you and. Uh, just do the work of a good shepherd. Uh, so we are in uh, a study through the book of Hebrews, and <clears throat> excuse me, we've come to chapter 12. And I think this morning I'll just, uh, we'll pick it up at verse 1. I'll read uh, through uh, verse 11 this morning. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, against himself lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons quoting now from proverbs 3 my son do not despise the discipline or the chastening of the lord <clears throat> nor be discouraged when you were rebuked by him For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure, for God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? What son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, to those who have been trained by it. There's a lot here in these words, obviously. I'm going to do my best to help us understand what the author is saying. He helps us in that he frames the Christian life in, uh, by using the analogy of an athletic analogy. It's a race, right? That's his words here. Let us run with endurance the race that is, before, that is set before us in verse 1. It's, it's helpful, okay? So we think of our Christian life as um, running a race. Let us run the race that is set before us. Now, as you full well know, uh, we're all on the same course, but everybody's length of race might be different. And the difficulty in that race might be different. So stop looking at your Christian friend or neighbor and comparing yourself with them, right? Jesus called out, I turned to Andrew because you preached from John 21, but Jesus called out Peter because he was comparing himself to John. And Jesus said, you keep your eyes on me. It's none of your business how long he lives okay? Your race, Peter, is different from John's. The point is stay faithful. Keep your eyes and your faith and your heart fixed on the one who put us in the race, who saved us and, and called us his sons and daughters. So the author is using this running analogy with the believers and giving them encouragement to keep going. Let me just read state something from a couple of weeks ago that all of a sudden in chapter 12 the author is running with them <laughs> as he starts using first person plural let us we he's a good shepherd he's not he he's running with them and he's he's discerning that boy you're you're getting you're getting frustrated, you're getting weary. And he's like, come on, man, let's, let's keep going. You can make it. So uh, I wanted to read through this and I wanna just tell you straight up, this is a big boy message, okay? Um, let me just set the record straight right now that persecution has come to the people who got this letter. The Christians who received this letter from their friend were being persecuted. A storm of persecution has broken in upon the disciples and now he's telling them that Father God is using this bad for good in their lives. And he's framing it in that very context of he's a father and he's disciplining the children who he loves. Yes. Are you telling me that when persecution at the hands of evil, sinful, unbelieving, unjust men is leveled against God's children That the author is saying, you're telling me that God is using that in a disciplinary way? Yes, that's what he's saying. It's a big boy message. And I hope to give some understanding to what is being said here. It's divine discipline. In the sense that, as Peter famously said in 1 Peter 4... He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So two things that keep us from running successfully the Christian life are weights and sins. Weights we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Not necessarily a bad thing. They're actually described separate from sin. So it's just worry, the things that we rightfully worry about. But they take too much importance. And then there is the sin which so easily entangles us. So the truth is, when hard times come, we don't live so much for ourselves. And it gives us a perspective of God's grace and of our own nature. And therefore, God can use a really bad thing as a disciplinary measure to strengthen us to keep going in the race. So the writer is encouraging, his encouragement comes in the form of giving perspective in the midst of suffering, to continue trusting God even when it hurts because he's at work in your life. I just want to remind you, my friends, that Jesus actually numerous times told us this is an aspect of living as a Christian, that is, suffering will come. Let me just quote a few verses that Jesus gave us. In the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, who are literally being run down by an enemy to cause you a whole bunch of trouble, to make your life miserable. Blessed are you. Matthew chapter 10, famous words, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He he goes on later in Matthew 10. You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. Again in Matthew 10. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, or that is, prince of the devils, referring to himself... How much more will they malign those of his household? Famously, John chapter 15, the great chapter of Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. Everything shifts in verse 18. After giving this wonderful relational, his assurance, and all of a sudden he says in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. And then finally, famously, John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the writer says to these people where this storm of persecution has broken in upon them, he says to them in verse three, consider him. And I don't want to camp out on that for just a moment, consider him. It means literally to weigh the evidence. To, It's, it's the idea of putting something in a scale or on a scale to see its value, and we're considering him. Consider him. I think it also comes with that idea, and I'm going like this, because I think of a scale in those days having two sides, right? And you're finding the balance of the scale. And I'm thinking on this side is my savior, and I'm comparing my life to his. And I'm finding that he's with me in this storm. And so the, the writer says to him, consider him. And I want to just say to you, my brothers and my sisters, and I want to look at every one of us in the eye, this is something we need to be doing now. We need to be considering the character and the love and the grace and the power of Jesus as revealed to us in the Gospels. It's something that you need to be doing now through regular prayer and reading of the Bible and conversation with others about what is true. It's the best preparation for, as we've now learned, the inevitable that will come. That is trials, persecution. It's the best preparation for when evil will come. Job proves that once and for all time. Because when hell broke loose in his life, literally, and he lost his family and his job and all of his assets, and he's in a moment in one day stripped down to nothing but the clothes on his back. You cannot prepare yourself for that unless you're constantly considering Him. That is, being loved by God and loving Him in return and trusting Him and running your little race and my little race through the various little trials that come our way and we find ourselves picking up greater steam and greater faith through the trials that come because He's there and He strengthens us. And when all that broke in Job's life, he famously arose, he rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He accepted what had happened to him is the hand of a loving father because he knew him. Also famously, there was one more trial that was going to come to Job and that was physical calamity. The devil was allowed to inflict him with horrible sores. And when that happened, his wife gave up. And she said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Sounds to me like she stopped considering her God. And she'd gotten lazy, perhaps, and that's total subjection. I admit that. But it's like, why is her response so different from Job's? And I think for sure one evidence that I know personally and you know personally is that if I'm not in fellowship with Jesus on a regular basis then he becomes distant and uh, not as familiar to me and I'm not as trusting and as confident in my journey as he wants me to be. So the writer says, consider him, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners From bad men who attacked a good God. Consider him, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Weary means literally, I can't do this anymore. You ever had the flu? Body aches, chills, the whole thing. You're just lying in bed. It's "Ah." It's kind of like that feeling of so fatigued, I just can't go any further. Weary, depleted, fatigued discouraged, hopeless, despondent. Consider him lest that come to you. You with me, brothers and sisters? Read your Bibles every day. Read your Bibles every day. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the book of Acts. And watch the lives of men who were propelled into the race. Suddenly, as the Spirit came upon them, the, the journey has begun for those disciples. And guess what? Persecution came in a very short order. But they were just bold and confident. And they found actually a fellowship with Jesus in their suffering. Considering him. Or maybe I should say it's, you know, better to say he can totally relate... To us, or we can totally relate to him. I'm not sure exactly how that goes, but I want to say this as just a little bit of a side note here a little bit of a side note. A brief word about the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel. Gospel means good news. Prosperity gospel is not good news, it's bad news. If you're not familiar, prosperity gospel is a health and wealth, right? Men allegedly of God preach that you, God wants you to be always healthy and prosperous and wealthy. That is not good news. It's bad news. I think of it as people who are running the race, those who in the prosperity world give them candy. Here's candy. Now, you get a sugar rush. It's a stimulant for sure, right? And it keeps you, and you feel better, and you're running a little bit further. But it's a false hope. It's a false energy rush. It's unhealthy. The very nature of health and wealth is selfish. And my writer, and and the inspired writer of these words, tells me at the end of verse 10 that one of the purposes of troubles and discipline from God is that we may be partakers of His holiness, of His holiness, which means there's less selfishness. But if I'm being told you need to be healthier and wealthier, then of course that evil keeps spreading around the world, and it's very popular. Of course, feeds the flesh. It's the opposite of what we should be hearing. Verse four, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, short little verse. Uh, You can take that two ways, by the way. Some people see that as the writer saying, come on, it's not all that bad. Or it could be saying, uh, if you think it's bad now, (laughs) there's inevitably, it's going to get worse. And either way, the author is saying, don't be discouraged, okay? Because I want you, he wants us to keep our eyes and our heart fixed on Jesus, all right? And he says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. I think it was David Guzik who said, You have forgotten. He said, that is the cause of so much problem in the Christian life, is when we forget what God's word says, right? And I'm so thankful for my wife, I just, little flash of thought there is that in different times of personal trial, Joni has come alongside me and she's just spoken God's word to me. She's spoken absolute truth to me and it's been so helpful to put things into perspective. No, it's not as bad, and actually some of the thoughts that keep circulating in my mind are lies. And so, to forget what God has said, and you know, I'm gonna be honest, uh, or I'll be uh, patient with these people. Hardship has come to them, such as I've never known. They've lost friends, they've lost family, they've lost homes. They've lost jobs. They've lost their livelihood. There, a lot of securities that we lean upon in this world have been stripped away from them, and they find themselves somewhat hopeless, homeless, and just wearing just the clothes on their back is kind of the only thing they have, and the fellowship with their brothers and sisters, which they were starting to neglect. And the author says, no, nah, it's, it's not that bad? Don't be discouraged. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He suffered. He's with you in your suffering. So have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? And he reminds them, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. I just got to tell you, as I'm reading that, I'm going, Wow, that seems like a hard message to people who are suffering. And he's saying to them, God's at work in your life. He's actually disciplining you. Wasn't it David in some of the Psalms where he talks about, uh, you know, our our heart, our soul, our life, it's like a precious metal that doesn't, you don't find its value until it's been intensely put into the intense fire. And God has that understanding, and he knows exactly what you and I can take. He puts us on the course. He's the one that designs the race. He's our personal trainer, if you will. And he causes us to keep looking to him, even though we stumble and we think it's hard to do. I just want to take a moment, and I want to tell you something that I was greatly encouraged by, uh, in that God's discipline, divine discipline, can come to us in three ways. It can be instructive, it can be corrective, and it can be preventative. Instructive, corrective, and preventative. Go back to Luke chapter 8. I'll show you an example of all three of those. Right? I'll show you an example of all three. Luke chapter 8, divine discipline. It comes in three forms, or for three reasons. It can be instructive. Luke chapter eight, verse twenty-two. Here's the instructive form of discipline. I guess we'll call it. It's a, it's a, it's 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 like a father with a son, where you love the son dearly, and you want to, but you just want to see the son, the son's character shaped. And so you might design a particular challenge in that son's life, or you might refuse or withhold something from that son or daughter, I should say, even though it might, you know it's going to have some kickback, right? But a good father will do that because he has a big plan, right? And so the father here's Jesus. Luke 8, 22. You know this. It happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. What did he just say? Let us go to the other side of the lake. Now, who said that? Jesus said that. Jesus is God. James taught us last week, God can't lie. So Jesus said, let's get in the boat and we'll go to the other side. That's what God's word had just told them. Well, a storm broke. But Jesus used it to instruct his disciples. So they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. <laughs> Mark's uh, account of this same thing said, Don't you care? We're dying. <laughs> thing, the, the, the boat had filled with water experienced fishermen, knew enough to go, we're not going to make it, in spite of what he said. And besides that, he's sleeping, completely silent, inactive, doesn't seem to have a care in the world about our particular turmoil. And they arose, or he arose, and it has often and famously been stated, it wasn't the storm that woke him up, it was the cry of his disciples. That's what woke him up. He arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, where's your faith? Maybe you don't understand, and oftentimes I don't understand, why this thing has been allowed into my life. But I've got a takeaway right here. I can put this into my tool belt and go... Maybe God's teaching me something through this difficulty that has come. It came at his hand. And so I just want to point out to you, there was a natural disaster. It was a storm that raised havoc on this boat. Here we are Sunday morning after Ian has raised havoc down in Florida and South Carolina. A natural disaster that God has allowed. But he's using bad for good. It's instructing them. It's teaching them. In this case, he demonstrates his power. He demonstrates his power over all creation. Does this guarantee, by the way, that he will always calm the storm? No, it doesn't. But it does teach me that he's in control. So there's a natural disaster. And Jesus, as you can see and I can see, he immediately demonstrates sovereignty over all the earth. As he spoke to the wind and the waves, and immediately the storm stopped in their hearts and on the lake. Because he's awake, he's answered their prayer, and he's done something. He's demonstrated his power. And he's like, now where's your faith? And they're like, it's in you. (laughs) If you can do that, you can do anything. Turn to Luke 22. I'll show you another form of discipline. And this one is corrective. So we have instructive, as we've just seen. This one is corrective. Luke 22, verse 31, the Lord said to Peter, who he calls him Simon twice, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Isn't that fascinating? I haven't rebuked Satan and told him to get his hands off of you. No, he has come to me and he said, give me a few minutes with that jerk. I'll ruin his life. And I've prayed for you, Peter, that after you go through this spiritual calamity, not a natural, this time a spiritual, but you see, Jesus is still in control. And he put a limit, he put a boundary on how much Satan could mess up Peter's life. Now, why would he do that? Let me finish reading verse 32, and then we'll answer the question by Peter's mouth, his own mouth. But I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have. So we've seen natural, spiritual, and now a physical malady. And Paul tells us right up front, verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Just listen if you haven't found it. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of. Of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a preventative nature. God had given Paul, you know, Paul was the one who contained the mysteries. Every time the word mystery is used in the epistles, it's always Paul. Because God gave him revelation of things that had not been previously been known. And Paul was the, the, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And he was, tells us in this chapter that there was a point in time in his life where he was taken up into paradise. And so things were revealed to him, illuminated to his heart and mind, his brilliant mind, but he also saw heaven itself and he saw God himself. And he says, now, Paul, I know that you put your pants on like everybody else, And you're going to have a tendency to get proud. So, I've designed this for you as a preventative measure so you don't become conceited. Paul accepted that. No matter what came his way, as he tells us sickness, reproaches, needs. Oh, my goodness, Paul had so many needs, he had need of a doctor to the point to where Luke, the physician, had to follow him around just to take care of his physical calamities, maladies rather, persecutions, multiple times, unjustly beaten by Jew and Gentile. He said, but when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God's discipline has a preventative nature to it. And so we three see these three things, physical, spiritual, and natural. Kind of covers the gamut of our race that we're running in this life, on this world. But in every case, he reveals his power, his wisdom, and finally here to Paul, his grace and his love. God's grace, God's influence on Paul's life. And the reflection of that in his heart, God's influence on Paul's heart, I'll say it that way, and the reflection of that in his life, so that when people saw and watched and listened to Paul and saw the things that he had gone through, they're like, there's something supernatural about this man. He's like, yeah. divine discipline. It helps me accept the reality of what the author in Hebrews is saying to these poor people who are going through a really challenging time. He's like God's using this in your life. Everybody else is seeing injustice or uh, all this, you know, the details, but they're not seeing what's true from God above. You are, though, And he's reminding them of that. Don't forget, he says, God's methods in those things can be instructive, corrective, or preventative. And in this case, you might say, maybe it's preventative. Because he said in verse 4, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. Maybe if you think it's bad now, just wait. And a lot of scholars... Say they they say, well, that's actually helpful because we know that Caesar Nero is the one who really unleashed the persecution of the Christians. And so maybe sort of form frames it in, in that time frame, in that era. He would not be, Nero would not be content with just a little persecution. He'd rather kill him. Or... Again, verse four, maybe it's maybe the author is saying, Look, you haven't gotten to that point yet. Just take a step back. Because our tendency is to overblow the, the circumstance in my life. How you doing? Oh my God, you have no idea. This is the worst thing ever. Oh, really? <laughs> and he's like, he, he's like, chill out. <laughs> you haven't gotten there yet. And just take a step back and know that, yeah, hard times, they're bad. Nobody likes them. I'm not asking for it. But God's at work in a corrective, instructive, or preventative nature. So he tells us, verse 7, you won't go much further here this morning. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. So now he frames it in that context of a father with his sons and daughters, with his children. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Wow, there's a word. All you dads, right? Need to discipline your moms and dads, right? Discipline your kids. Future moms and dads, discipline your kids. Withhold, right? Or dish out the necessary consequence for wrong behavior that you've established. The boundaries expand as they get older, obviously. But when they break the boundaries and they disobey, they need to understand that there are consequences and for the decisions that they make in life. And so it's our calling as grandmas and grandpas and as moms and dads and as brothers and sisters to encourage, come on, get up, get back on the race, put your Nike Airs on or whatever it is you wear and let's start getting our stride back. What son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, see, because he's my father, he will discipline all of his kids. I got to tell you, my friends, there was a time where I would, used to be really scared. I'm being honest with you. I used to be fearful Of saying, Lord, you can do with me whatever you want. Because I always had this idea that now the storm's going to break loose. And I don't want that. And so, you know, I'd try to devise my own course. But you go on in life and you live with the Lord and you realize after a while, it's kind of like Paul, because I don't even regard my life anymore. I don't count it as dear to myself. Whatever happens, it happens. I've placed my soul in the hands of Jesus Christ, who has saved me eternally. And he's a good God. If you're without chastening, then you're illegitimate and not sons. I don't know. I guess maybe I'm wondering about verse 8 if our response to the discipline indicates we need to be saved. if our response to the physical or natural or spiritual calamity that is broken in upon our little world and our response to that is bitterness, then maybe it's because we're not a son or a daughter. You'll get bitter or you'll get better. That's what happens with discipline. And maybe bitterness comes as you're getting better, (laughs) but you're a son. And your parents beat that out of you. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sort of. (laughs) Or maybe I could say of verse 8 that God's response to my sin might indicate sonship or not in other words my sin brings down a consequence that i know has come from the father because i'm reading his word and i'm actively involved in christian fellowship and i've grown in my faith through the various disciplines over time and so when i sin i experience not a condemnation which is in the head but a deep conviction in the heart by the Holy Spirit that says, you just blew it. That remark you just made, you just blew it. That was ungracious, that was self-centered because you've got an attitude about that person and you just let it out. And you did not encourage them. Your words were not seasoned with grace. They were spiteful and hateful. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't disdain it. It's him actively working in your lives, brothers and sisters. So that tells me in some weird kind of a cool way that I'm actually his son because the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin. Illegitimate son, I sin and there's no discipline. Then what? Then comes wrath. Then will be the recipients of the ultimate. Not a discipline, but a judgment. And you can see it so clearly, right, who has much greater power, love, grace, and wisdom. I just want to say one more word uh, related to this and it's, it's something that needs to be said. And that is simply, uh, it's very possible that not everybody in this room has had a human father that was very good. Uh, And we know they're bad dads. We know they're bad dads because we have a human intuition that tells us what they should do as a father. And when that isn't met, we go, something's wrong, even as a little child. Well, because you and I are made in God's image, let me say to you, you have an intuition built into your DNA, your spiritual DNA, that God is good. And although you may not see, have seen a reflection of God's gracious discipline in your dad's life, You have an intuition. How do you know that it's bad? Because you know what is good. And so that same intuition that you might have about a human dad, you have that about God. And you will find its fulfillment, your full fulfillment in him. And in my reading this week, I came across the testimony that I want to share with you from a man named John Perkins. Highly encouraged that you read his stuff. I think he's still alive. He's a black man who's been a pastor for many decades. If I'm not mistaken, he actually gave the inaugural prayer at Obama's uh, inauguration, John Perkins. He's a pastor, a social activist, and a racial reconciler. He's a good brother. But he tells of his own father deserting him when he was a boy in his book let justice roll down. Let me just read this to you to give you an example of what I'm talking about. I knew then that daddy was going away without me. But I still didn't turn back. So once more, he came and whooped me one last time. Just then, Auntie came. I stood there between the two of them, neither one saying anything. Then she took me by the hand and dragged me away, back down the tracks toward home. I looked back once, but Daddy was already gone. And with him went my newfound joy in belonging and being loved, and being somebody for just a little while. I cried all the way back to the house, holding tightly to Auntie with one hand and carrying my heart with the other. What was Daddy really thinking? What was in his mind that day when he left me? I never found out. But I do know. That even when he punished me for following him that afternoon, he was admitting we had some sort of relationship. Amen. That is wisdom. That is grace. That is healing that has come at the hands of God the Father to our brother. I'm sorry, it's way too common today. So it seemed like it was an appropriate time and place to maybe enter into your world and to make that comment. Verse 10. They indeed, for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them. (laughs) I think there's a caveat there—that's like, you know what? Sometimes we screw it up. (laughs) Uh, The chastening just doesn't—it was wrong. And and then, but we did the best we could, and they did it for our profit. But he, rather, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To those who have been trained by it. I grew up on the King James. I've turned a leaf, I'm now into the new King James. Right, But, uh, you know, King James has its advantages sometimes because the archaic language forces you to do word studies to try to understand what they're saying. And verse 11 is one of those cases because it says those who have been exercised by it. And I'll never forget the first time I discovered a concordance that gives the definition of words and exercised. The Greek word is gumnadzo. And it's not hard to figure out that we get our word gymnasium, (laughs) right? So God, are you being trained by God as your personal trainer? (laughs) And he's training us to run this race successfully. And he's saying, consider, consider me. Look diligently, (laughs) right? The author keeps telling us to cast our cares upon him. For he cares for you. If you've been trained, if you've received the correction and the instruction and the prevention that is necessary, he's a great God who's personally training us to make it to the, all the way to the end. And that's the word of the Lord. Let's stand and let's pray. Thank you for the perspective, Lord, for we all suffer. As someone once said, I think it was Elizabeth Elliot, suffering is simply not getting what you need. Well, life is hard. And Lord, may we be the salt and the light that you intend for us, that we won't wrestle against the hardships and the difficulties and the trials, and maybe even, yes, the persecution, the sanctioning, the loss of friendships, some of the hardest challenges in life. May we not kick against those things, but look up. May we take to heart what you've said to us here, that you have a plan. You have all the power and all the wisdom and all the love and grace that we need So that we can keep running. You know the measure of my days, what they are. May we be found faithful when you call us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessings to you.